Mark chapter 6, I'll be reading to through verse 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the disciples came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Lord, we thank you as we bow before you for your word, for the way it speaks to life as nothing else can, the way it speaks to our lives personally. As Paul instructed us, your word gives us the content of our teaching. Your word gives us correction when we're on the wrong course. Your word corrects our theology when it is gone askew. And your word trains us to live righteous lives that we can minister to each other and to the world around us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to study it. Thank you for your son, for his willingness to die in our place on Calvary, that we might have the hope of eternal life by simply putting our trust in him. There's even one here this morning, either in the first service or this one, who have yet to put their trust in Jesus. I pray that you might draw them to yourself this day. Lord, thank you. Teach us. Show us those things you want us to see. Give us a heart to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't be surprised if your own family and friends are the hardest to reach for Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised if your own family and friends are the hardest to reach for Jesus Christ. As one writer said about our passage this morning, when Jesus comes home to Nazareth, now as a visiting rabbi, his neighbors show bitter resentment. Isn't that interesting? Don't you think he would be coming home as the conquering hero? Don't you think he would be coming home as the one who's being hailed for the things that are noised about, about him, about the uh, difference he is making in people's lives, about his ministry to people, about his uh, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. Don't you think that maybe they'd even throw him a parade? Jesus is back! Yay! No, quite the opposite. They were offended by him. After all, isn't he the carpenter? They almost spit the word out. Because they had little respect for manual labor. And so Jesus is rejected in his own city. 
He's rejected in his own city. We'll see more about that next week. We'll only get to a part of that this week. But as the writer said, when Jesus comes home to Nazareth, now as a visiting rabbi, his neighbors show bitter resentment. Who does Jesus think he is anyway? Their unbelief is a barrier that keeps him from performing miracles there. See, Jesus' own neighbors and his own family doubted him. His own neighbors and his own family doubted who he said he was, doubted the fact, the claim that he made to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and they were offended by him. So don't be surprised if your own family and friends are the hardest to reach for Jesus Christ. When I was a new believer in Jesus Christ, so many changes came into my life, new desires came into my life, a change in the direction of my life uh, happened when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, so much so that my family and my friends said, you were brainwashed. Have you ever been accused of that? Yeah. Yeah. People don't understand our trust in Jesus Christ. They don't understand what a difference Jesus Christ can make to our lives. And so family and my family and friends considered me brainwashed because so much had changed. By the way, the rest of the story is many of them came to know Christ as Savior. Not all of them, but many came to know Christ as Savior. So don't be surprised if your own family and friends are the hardest to reach for Christ. Now, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13 divides into two sections. The first section, verses 1 through 6, is the ministry of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus by family and friends in Nazareth. That's the first six verses. And then the next uh, seven, next uh, six verses, seven verses, from verse 7 through verse 13 of chapter 6, is, describes the ministry of the twelve. Uh, and that's what we're going to spend our time on this morning primarily, and that is talking about how Jesus trained the twelve, how Jesus tw- tra- uh, trained the twelve apostles and prepared them to take up the ministry prepared them to take up the ministry. So that's how the, situ- the uh, uh, passage divides. The parallel passage uh, passages to this that are found in the other Gospels, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58 is parallel to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15, and Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6 is the parallel passages to Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Remember, studying the parallel passages helps you to get a full picture of what's going on. All right? Uh, Let's look at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Again, his hometown is Nazareth, okay? He went there. Now, by the way, uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, describes a time when Jesus went to Nazareth 
a year earlier than this event in Mark. Jesus was in Nazareth, Nazareth a year earlier than this event in Mark. Uh, the, interestingly, we don't know how many times he returned to Nazareth. We know that he was there a year before Mark 6. We know that he was there in Mark 6. But interestingly enough, we don't think he ever visited Nazareth again. We don't think he ever visited Nazareth again. Uh, what a sad story. But uh, Nazareth is 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Uh, this was not a personal visit, and it's important to understand that. He wasn't com coming home to see mom, okay? He wasn't coming home to see brothers and sisters. Uh, he was coming back as a rabbi, a teacher who would instruct his own disciples. So Jesus comes back to Nazareth as a rabbi with disciples, and he is primarily interested in training them, teaching them, preparing them to go out and do ministry, to go out and do ministry. So I think it's important to ask, for us to ask, uh, how did he prepare them? How did Jesus prepare his disciples to minister? Uh, we won't get till, till next week. It, it'll be before we get to the ministry itself that the disciples did. But how did they prepare? Well, actually, Mark has already dealt with this in chapter 3. And when we went through chapter 3, we focused primarily on how Jesus chose his 12 disciples but we didn't spend any time at that time on how he trained his 12 disciples. So I want to go back to 3, chapter 3, this morning for a short time and to help us answer the question, how did Jesus train his disciples? So if you would turn back to chapter 3 of, of the book of Mark, chapter 3 and verse 13, uh, we'll look at that passage and we'll see how is it that Jesus trained his disciples. How did he do, to, to put it in a different term, how did he do discipleship? How did he do discipleship? Well, we read in chapter 3 and verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him. You should underline those two words, that they might be with him, and that he might send them, and you should underline those words, send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, and then they are named. So what we want to look at this morning is how was he preparing his disciples. How was he preparing his disciples for mission? Well, we see here that his approach was twofold. He, had, he appointed 12 and we're given two reasons for his appointing them. We're given two reasons for his appointing them. And by the way, it should be, it should be noted that from chapter 3 on, Jesus primarily spent time with these 12. 
it was going to be so important because once he had been crucified, was buried, was raised from the dead, they would carry on the ministry. He would be ascended into heaven. They would carry on ministry. So it was important for him to train them. And from the chapter 3 on, he spent his time teaching and training the 12 as of primary importance, as of primary importance. Well, the twofold method of his training them is found in the words, with him and sent out. With him and sent out. He appointed the 12, first of all, so they could be with him. That is, that is they had close association with him. They had close association with him. Uh, you could use the words communion, companionship, and training. That's what he did with these disciples. He was with them so that he could have communion with them, so that he could have companionship with them, so he could train them. That was the first of the two reasons for appointing the twelve, so that they could be with him. The second is so they could be sent out. Think of the word commission. Think of the word commission. He commissioned them. We're going to see that back in chapter 6, starting at verse 7, how he commissioned these disciples. Uh, we see it in other places in the scripture. Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Uh, he commissioned them. So they would be with him, communion, companionship, training. So they would be sent out, commission, to preach, to have authority, to drive out demons. Now, why was it important for Jesus to give them authority to drive out demons? Why is it important that Mark mentions this particularly? Well, it's important because the salvation that Jesus brings involves the defeat of Satan and his demons. The salvation that Jesus brings involves the defeat of Satan and his demons. So their training was not an end in itself. Their training was so that they might be sent out. That they might be sent out. So... The question that we might want to discuss for a few minutes is this. What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? All right? We, we have seen the term already several times in chapter uh, 3 of Mark. We'll see it again in chapter 6 of Mark that the disciples are, call, the, uh, disciples are called the twelve. And these 12 are also called what? Apostles. So the disciples are called the 12, and they're also called apostles. Now, what is the difference, biblically speaking, between an apostle and a disciple? Well, let me go over quickly. Number one, disciple in Greek is mathetas, and it just, uh, or mathetes, and it just simply means a learner. Whenever you see the word disciple in the scripture, whether it's talking about a disciple of Jesus or some other kind of disciple, it just simply means a learner. That's the use of the word disciple. 
The word apostle is used in Scripture in two ways. It is used as a technical term for the twelve, so that sometimes when you're reading the Scripture and you're studying the Scripture and you see the word apostle, it means the twelve. It means the twelve. Other times when you're reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God and you see the word apostle, it just simply is a generic term to mean someone sent with a commission. So in the scripture, we have disciple, a learner. Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. Every apostle, let me say that again, it almost sounds like a tongue twister, right? Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. That's because the word apostle is used as a technical term for the twelve, and it's also used generically to speak of anyone sent with a commission. So that's the difference between disciple and apostle. Now, there's another thing that we ought to understand here that's important for us to understand, and that is this, that there are no apostles, and I'm reading here from uh, the website gotanswers.org, which is an, or excuse me, I always reverse it. I, I always say God answers. It's not that. What is it? It's got questions, yes. Uh, if, if you are looking for a website that's, that's uh, doctrinally good, and that will answer about any biblical question you have from, from uh, any part of the Bible, uh, you want gotquestions.org. It's an excellent, excellent website. And uh, uh, they mention here the next thing we want to learn about apostles, and that is there are no capital A, I'm going to call them capital A to speak of the 12, there are no capital A apostles alive in the world today. That's important because there are people running around today calling themselves apostles and making themselves equal to the 12 in the scripture, and you cannot do that because there are no capital A apostles alive in the world today. Now, why do I say that? Because there's nobody today, unless they are 2,000 plus years old, who could be apostles and meet the requirements, meet the characteristics of an apostle. Let me show you. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me, the book of Acts. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts, chapter 1, starting at verse 18. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, may another take his place of leadership. So Peter, studying the scripture, comes to the conclusion that it was necessary to replace Judas. Judas, who has abandoned them and abandoned 
Jesus, Judas who has killed himself, it's necessary to have somebody take his place. And so in verse 21 of Acts 1 we read, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us. Now here you're going to learn the qualifications for somebody to be a capital A apostle. Somebody needed to replace Judas, who was a capital A apostle. What are the qualifications to replace him? Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism. Number one qualification. Anybody who would be a capital A apostle has to have been with Jesus from the time of John's baptism until the time Jesus was taken up from them and been a part of that group and walked with Jesus and heard him talk and saw him alive from the dead. So it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism, right up to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, that is in the ascension which followed his death and burial and his resurrection. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. No one, no one can meet that qualification today. No one alive today can meet that qualification so anyone who claims to be a capital A apostle on the plane with the 12, they are just simply mistaken. They are wrong. So, disciple, mathetes, a learner. Every apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. And then we have apostolos, which is apostles used as both a technical term, meaning the 12 and used generically as somebody sent on a mission. Somebody sent on a mission. Now, one last thing that I have time to deal with this morning, and I, I, I did want to talk about, uh, we're talking about disciples, uh, learners, we're talking about apostles, those sent with a commission. Uh, I wanted to spend our last few moments before we uh, think about the... the uh, Lord's Supper, with the question, what are the essentials of a disciple? What is essential? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a disciple. You'll never be a capital A apostle. You may be a little a apostle sent with a commission, but if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're a disciple. So the question is, what should be essential for you, and what should be essential for me as disciples of Jesus Christ? What should be essential for you and essential for me as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, there, there are many ways to put that, many ways to answer that. I just want to briefly, this morning, in about the last four minutes I have, I want to briefly talk about, uh, from the Robert D. Foster book, Essentials of Discipleship, 11 essentials he lays out of a disciple. And what I'm, I'm doing this for is not so that we can take up four more minutes and my time is up. Uh, I'm doing it because we need to turn these into questions 
to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are we doing as disciples? Uh, The first of the 11 essentials of discipleship is a discipleship is a learner, open and teachable. A disciple is a learner, open and teachable. Number two, so, so, so what we do is turn those into questions. Am I a learner? Am I open? Am I teachable? The second essential, a disciple puts Christ first in all areas of his life or her life. Do I put Christ first? Or has Christ come behind some other things that are more important to me? Number three, a disciple is committed to a life of purity and is taking steps to separate from sin. Number four, a disciple is developing his or her prayer life. So we ask ourselves, how's my prayer life? Uh, how, how's that going? Number five, a disciple demonstrates a desire to learn and apply the word of God. How am I doing with the word? Do I ignore it? Do I spend time uh, apart from at church, apart from as part of a ministry? Um, Number six, a disciple has a heart for sharing his or her faith. Number seven, a disciple attends church regularly to worship God, to have his or her spiritual needs met, and to make a contribution to the body of believers. You know, when we come together on Sunday morning, or we come together in other times like for uh, a ministry uh, that we're a part of, it's not just what we get from it. It's what we give to those around us. When you come here, when I come here on a Sunday morning, it's not just so we can get something. It is so we can give something to those around us. Uh, Number eight, a disciple fellowships regularly with other believers displaying love and unity. Number nine, a disciple demonstrates a servant heart by helping others in practical ways. Number 10, a disciple gives regularly and honors God with his or her finances. Uh, you, You know the way that you can tell in your life and I can tell in my life what's most important to us? All you have to do is get out your phone and look at your calendar, and you'll see how important God is in your life, how important he is in my life. Then open that little app you have for your bank account and see what it is, what part of that bank account God owns and what part you or I own. We used to say our calendar and our checkbook, but who uses checks anymore, right? But it's there on your phone, your bank app, your calendar app. A disciple gives regularly and honors God with their finances. The greatest thing that I've learned about giving, and I've learned a lot over the years, but the greatest thing that I've learned is from the mouth of David in the concluding chapters of, uh, it's either 1st or 2nd Samuel, where he is required by God to buy a threshing floor and to make a sacrifice on that threshing floor from a man named Aruna. 
and Aruna, when David comes to him to buy the, the materials, Aruna says to him, oh, uh, David, 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 put your money away. Your money's no good here, buddy. Your money's no good here. And uh, remember what David said to him? I shall not give God that which costs me nothing. If our giving isn't costing us something, then maybe it's not where it needs to be. Anyhow, number 10, a disciple gives regularly and honors God with his finances. Number 11, a disciple demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit by an attractive relationship with Christ and his fellow man. If we turn those into questions, we have a good way to evaluate our own discipleship. Am I a learner, open and teachable? Do I put Christ first in all areas? Am I committed to a life of purity and separateness from sin? Am I developing my prayer life? Do I have a desire to learn and apply the word of God? Do I have a heart for sharing my faith? Do I attend worship regularly and contribute to the body of believers? Do I fellowship regularly with other believers? Do I demonstrate a servant's heart? Do I give regularly and honor God with my finances? And last of all, do I demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit by an attractive relationship with Christ and our fellow men and ladies? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the challenges of being a disciple and the challenges of your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for opening our eyes and giving us a means by which we can evaluate how are we doing as those who are disciples of yours. Help us to look at our lives, Lord, not, not to put ourselves down, not to look for a way to uh, bring ourselves under condemnation, but, Lord, for a way that we might better love you and serve you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.